It may shock many people in our culture to find out that the love of money is dangerous. Even among Christians, it's easy to fall for the lie that our finances can provide true satisfaction and security. However, Jesus invites us to something more satisfying than money, Himself. In this message from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-19, through 19, David Platt points us to the Apostle Paul's instructions to those who have wealth. Though we may not always feel it, compared to most of the world and to most people in history, many in the U.S. and in the West are wealthy. Therefore, we need to hear Scripture's warnings to the wealthy. We also need to hear of the eternal riches that belong to those who treasure Jesus Christ. This sermon on giving is in a series that identifies 12 traits of a biblical church. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, You Need Biblical Giving. you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 10. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to. It's the second gospel, second book of the New Testament, Mark chapter 10. And as you're turning there, I want to welcome those of you in Arlington and Montgomery County and Loudoun and Prince William, as well as others online. It's really good to gather together around God's Word across our city. What if God has designed your heart to be glad, not in getting, but in giving? Specifically, what if God has designed your heart to be glad, not in getting more money and possessions, but in giving more money and possessions? What if gladness in your heart is actually dependent on giving in your life? What if more stuff is not the way to happiness? What if More sacrifice is actually the way to happiness. If that was true, it would drastically change the way we live in this world, wouldn't it? The way we live in this city. So is it true? Has God designed your heart right where you are sitting to be more glad in giving than in getting. That's certainly the way Jesus, God in the flesh, saw it. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. says he was setting out on his journey, and a man who we soon find out was very rich ran up and knelt before him and asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like picture the scene. This guy runs to Jesus. He bows down before him. He's young, influential, rich, and eager. This is what you call a prime prospect. Just imagine if this rich, influential guy becomes a follower of Jesus, we can put him on the circuit. He'll start sharing his story. Think of all he can do. And all that can happen with all of his riches, 
we have to get this guy in. So what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Jesus is saying, obey the commands, the word of God. That's the way to life. And the man said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth, which sets up Jesus to go straight for the heart. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Ha. Huh. No. Hey, man, just pray a prayer and say these words, and you are in. No. Jesus says what we saw last week. Die to yourself and all your possessions and do whatever I say. And in what has to be the classic example of letting the big fish get away, verse 22 says, disheartened by the saying, the man went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Let's think about what just happened. This man wants Life. He wants eternal life. That's what he's after. He wants life now and life that lasts forever. He wants what we all want. And Jesus, God in the flesh, looks at him in love. And Jesus wants him to have eternal life. Don't miss this word right here. When Jesus gives what seem like hard commands to us, they are always, always, always driven by love. The picture in Mark 10 is crystal clear. Jesus loves rich people. He loves rich people enough to tell them the truth. And he wants their good. Don't miss the point here. Look at Jesus' words. He's not calling this man away from pleasure. He's calling him to pleasure, eternal pleasure. Sell all that you have. Give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Like at first glance, this command seems like a call to sacrifice, which in obvious ways it is, but not ultimately, right? What is Jesus calling him to? To treasure in heaven. Like that will last forever. Isn't that what he said he wants? Eternal life? Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you to have what you want. Actually, more than you can even imagine you want. There's almost a tinge of self-serving motivation here, isn't there? Jesus is actually saying, give away and get something better. Jesus is not saying, stop caring about treasure. Jesus is saying, start caring about real treasure. In other words, be smart. Stop living for short-term treasures that you cannot keep 
and start living for long-term treasure that you cannot lose. We're about to see in God's Word that living for more stuff in this world is deceptive and dangerous and deadly. But before we even see those D words, here's another one. Living for more stuff in this world is dumb. (laughs) Right? Think about it. This is the most elementary, basic principle in investing. If you have a stock here that will yield a little treasure for a little time, and another stock here that will yield a lot of treasure for a lot of time, which do you invest in? God, help us to apply the most simple financial sense to what matters most in our lives. And don't miss it. Jesus is not just calling this man and us to treasure in heaven. What does Jesus say? Come, follow me. In other words, I'm not just calling you to treasure in heaven. I'm calling you to treasure in me in relationship with God. But did you see what happened? This man's unwillingness to do what Jesus was telling him to do with his possessions would cause him to miss Jesus completely. Is that possible? Is it possible for your or my unwillingness to do what Jesus tells us to do with our possessions to cause us to miss Jesus completely. Absolutely it's possible. Look at verse 22. This man walks away full of sorrow. Why? Because he's turning his back on the only one who can bring him joy. What a sad scene to see a man walking away from eternal treasure in God because his hands are full with earthly trinkets in the world. Which leads Jesus to, verse 23, look around and say to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, exclamation point. Oops. Where did it go? There it is. Exclamation point. Like, that verse should reverberate in our ears in this gathering. Because this is talking about us. We are those who have wealth. Like, unless you're visiting today from another country... All of us live in one of the wealthiest countries to ever exist in the history of the world. Now, obviously, there are different degrees of wealth among us. And we may not always feel wealthy, oftentimes because we can always think of someone who's more wealthy. But if we have clean water and sufficient food and clothes and a roof over our heads at night and access to medicine and education and a mode of transportation, even if it's public, then relative to billions of people in the world, we are wealthy. I wrote a foreword years ago for a book 
called When Helping Hurts by two economics professors, Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert, followers of Jesus. And they write about present-day Americans saying, by any measure, we are the richest people ever to walk on planet Earth. And I don't mention that to make us feel guilty, but simply to open our eyes to the reality that those who have wealth are us. And Jesus just said it is difficult for us to enter the kingdom of God. It's difficult to get to God's kingdom from Fairfax County, Loudoun County, Prince William County, Arlington County, Montgomery County. Jesus just said it's hard to get to heaven from the capital of one of the most affluent countries in the history of the world. And let's just be honest, most people in our culture and in the church just don't believe Jesus on this one. In our minds, we only think of wealth and money and possessions as blessings. But Jesus just said these things can be barriers to the kingdom of God. Do we believe Jesus here? Now, as soon as I ask that, I want to state clearly, the Bible never teaches that wealth or money or possessions are inherently evil. But Jesus is clearly warning us here in one of the many places where God warns us in his word. Turn me over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want you to see this warning. 1 Timothy chapter 6 Verse 6, and as you're turning, I, I just want to ask you to prepare your heart and mind because what you're about to hear is so different than the way we are wired to think and feel. It goes totally against the grain of every message this world is selling you and me. So God help us to hear what you are saying to us right now. First Timothy chapter 6 Verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Are we hearing this? Those who desire to be, this is just the desire for it, even those who have it, those who desire more stuff fall into temptation, into a snare. It's a trap, the Bible says. The desire for more and new, newer and nicer and better. It's like drinking seawater. If you're thirsty, you see seawater, you think, that will be good for me. But you don't realize that seawater has this high concentration of salt. So the more you drink, the more thirsty you become. And the more you drink, the sooner you dehydrate. 
And if you keep drinking, you'll get headaches, then dry mouth, then low blood pressure, a rapid heart rate. Eventually, you'll become delirious, you'll go unconscious, and you'll die. It's amazing. You see water, and you think, that's what I want. But as you drink it, unbeknownst to you, you are killing yourself. I give you a picture of wealth and money and possessions and stuff in this world. The more we go after it, the more it destroys us. That's what God is saying. This constant desire for more is deceptive and dangerous and ultimately deadly, and that's not too strong a word. God is telling us right now through his spirit his word that the desire for riches plunges us into ruin and destruction and pierces us with many pangs. Who wants that? God, help us to hear you. Help us to hear what you're saying right now, that the desire for wealth in this world is deceptive, dangerous, deadly, and dumb. But it looks like it satisfies God is saying, don't buy it, run, don't walk, run from the desire for riches and the love of money. And God is telling us this right now, why? Because he loves us. He is looking at you and me in the eye right now and saying, I love you so much, I don't want you to waste your life on what won't last. To give your life to what lasts. So, how do we live like that? Well, you jump down to verse 17 in this same chapter, right after the Bible says, fight the good fight of the faith. War against this desire in your heart for money and possessions and comfort in this world. But that doesn't mean there won't be rich people. Again, we live in this country. As long as God tells us to stay in this country, which, again, as we talked about last week, is negotiable for every follower of Jesus. But verse 17, hear God's word to us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, this is so good. So here's God's five-part plan for rich people. One, cultivate humility for the glory of God. Charge them, don't be haughty. Don't be prideful. Realize every good thing you have comes from God and belongs to God. In other words, your riches, all the good things that you have are not yours. God owns them. You're the manager. So manage them, steward them for the owner's purposes, for the owner's glory. Whatever God brings God the most glory among all the nations, use your wealth for that. 
Why have we been given wealth? We have been given wealth for the spread of God's worldwide worship. That's why we have it. So cultivate humility for the glory of God. Second, set your hope on the goodness of God. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't think you're secure because you have stuff. You're secure because you have God. And if you don't have God and you have all the stuff in the world, you are very insecure. Don't hope in the gifts. Hope in the giver. Riches are uncertain. Here one day, gone the next. And one day, and it could be today for any one of us, they'll all be gone. So set your hope on God. Find your security in God. Find your comfort in God. Find your contentment in God. That's the whole picture earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Godliness with contentment. That is great gain. Who of us doesn't want contentment? God is calling us to be free, free from the rat race in Metro D.C. We don't have to live with the constant unending quest for satisfaction and more stuff in this world and things that will let us down, in people even that will let us down, in a world that will let us down. God is saying to every person right now, I offer you satisfaction that saves you from the endless empty quest for it in this world. Did you read Psalm 103 in our church Bible reading plan this last week? First, Psalm 103, verse 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I'm reading that whatever morning it was, and I'm like, that's a five-point sermon right there. <laughs> what are the benefits of God? Well, I'm glad you asked. He forgives all your iniquity, he heals all your diseases, he redeems your life, makes you totally new from the pit, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, like that's your crown, and he satisfies you with good. Oh, don't put your hope in stuff, put your hope in God. <clears throat> For all who are visiting here today, Exploring Christianity, we invite you to put your hope in God. He is better than all the best stuff of this world put together. God loves you and us so much that even though we have sinned against God, he has come to us in the person of Jesus. He has died on a cross, risen from the grave, so that anyone, anywhere who trusts in Jesus will be forgiven, healed, redeemed, crowned, and satisfied with the goodness of God for all of eternity. We invite you, put your trust in Jesus. 
And when you do, and for all who have, let's live different than the rest of this world. We have not set our hope on riches. We've set our hope on God, which frees us from running after all the stuff this world offers, which leads us back to verse, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 18, where God's plan for the rich continues. Number three. Give generously. This is God saying they are to do good. Be rich in what? In good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. At which point, many people may ask, okay, so how, how much am I supposed to give? But that question misses the point. God is saying give generously, which means we don't ask, how much am I supposed to give? We ask, how much can I possibly give? If your heart is designed by God to be glad in giving, then give generously for your good, for others' good, and for God's glory. Win, win, win. People say, okay, well, does that mean a tithe? And we don't have time to do a whole Old Testament study this morning, but to summarize, and keep in mind that Israel was an entire nation. When you read Leviticus 27.30, you see that God commanded that a tithe, a tenth, 10% of all the produce of one's land and flocks should be given to the Lord. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 22 and 23, we see that another tithe, was taken to support festivals and celebrations among God's people. So that was a second tithe, a second 10%. Then when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 28 and 29, in the third year, another tithe was taken, another tenth that would be distributed to the poor, the marginalized, strangers, the fatherless, and widows. So when you add all of that up for the people of God in the Old Testament, you actually had two tithes given every year, about 20% of their income, then another tithe given every three years. So the average total came to about 23% per year. And even that wasn't the sum of their giving. That was only a part. On top of the tithes, they had first fruit offerings and free will offerings. At one point in Exodus chapter 36, they were giving so generously that Moses had to tell them to stop giving. So with that background in the Old Testament, we turn the pages into the New Testament, and we don't see a specific command to tithe. Instead, we see example after example of going above and beyond a tithe. As soon as the church starts, Acts 2.45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts 4. 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many words were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. In other words, once we turn the pages into the New Testament, a new covenant, Jesus has come, he's died on the cross, he's risen from the grave, the Spirit of God now lives in his people, we don't see less giving, we see more. So if you're looking for what the Bible says about how much we give specifically, the way I would describe it is 
it seems like when it comes to giving generously, the tithe is the floor of Christian giving. And I say it seems like because, as I mentioned, we don't have a specific command, but we do have a picture that makes it seem like the tithe, giving a tenth of your income, is not the ceiling of Christian giving. It's more like the floor where it starts. And then based on what we see in the Bible, it sure seems like the sky is the limit of Christian giving. God does not limit how much your heart can be glad in giving. Picture it this way. Remember what 1 Timothy 6 said about contentment? If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. What would happen if we all, as followers of Jesus, decided to set a line of contentment in our lives? from which we tithe, again, as the floor of our giving, and then we said, anything, everything else God gives above that, I'm free to give away. In other words, what if we decided that a raise in income doesn't have to necessitate a raise in our standard of living? What if we decided that a raise in income is an opportunity to raise our standard of giving. This is John Wesley in church history saying, Christians should give all away but the plain necessities of life. That is, plain, wholesome food, clean clothes, and enough to carry on one's business. Any Christian who takes for himself anything more than the plain necessities of life lives in an open, habitual denial of the Lord, and he has gained both riches and hellfire. Well, that's strong language. But he backed it up with his life. In 1731, Wesley began to limit his expenses so he would have more money to give away. He records how one year his income was 30 pounds, his living expenses around 27, 28, so he had two or three pounds to give away. The next year, his income doubled, but he still lived on 28 pounds. He now gave 32 pounds away. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. Again, he lived on 28, giving 62 away. The fourth year, he made 120 pounds. He continued to live on 28 and gave 92 pounds away to the poor. Wesley continued this practice throughout his life. Even when his income rose into the thousands of pounds, he lived simply and quickly gave away his surplus money. One year, his income was slightly over 1,400 pounds. He gave away all but around 30. He was afraid of laying up treasures on earth. So the money went out as quickly as it came in. When he died in 1791, the only money mentioned in his will was the miscellaneous coins found in his pockets and dresser drawers. Most of the 30,000 pounds he had earned in his lifetime, he had given away. That is a weird way to live in this world. Why did he do that? I suppose it's because he believed the Bible that godliness with contentment is great gain. And he believed God when God said, give generously. 
What if we did this? In our church family, we have a 20 plus million dollar budget. If we were actually giving the way God is calling us to give, our budget would easily be two, three times that as a church. Just dream of all we can do in our city and around the world for the spread of the gospel and the glory of our God and the good of our hearts. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, Give generously and invest eternally. Store up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future. Let's just be honest. What we're talking about here sounds extreme, radical, crazy in this world. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? When we follow a king who said, do not lay up for yourselves treasure in this world. Where moth and wrath destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasure in another world. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So the question is, which world are you living for? Imagine with me for a moment that your home is in Australia. We have a family in our church group from Australia. Imagine you come to the United States for just one month where you live in a hotel room that has everything you need. And imagine there's a rule that you can only carry one thing back with you to Australia on your flight home. The only thing you can carry is money. So you can earn, and you actually have a lot of opportunities to earn money in America. You can even send deposits back to the bank in Australia. But that's all for the month you're here. So here's my question for you. If that were the case, would you take any money you make and start buying expensive furnishings and extravagant wall hangings to put up in your hotel room? Would you focus all your time on making that hotel room as great as possible? I'm guessing you wouldn't. Why not? Because your time here is so short. You know you can't take any of those things with you. It's just a hotel room for a month. So if you're wise, yes, you'll cover your needs here, but you won't invest money into your hotel room when you can send it home. I give you, Christian, a picture of your life in this world. You're only here for a little while. 70, 80, 90 years? That's not very long when you think about 10 billion years and eternity will have just started. And during these short days here, you're bombarded with the temporary. Get stuff here in this world. Make yourself comfortable here in this hotel. But God, who knows all things and knows what's best for you and me, never tells us this. Never. In fact, he tells us the opposite. He says, fix your eyes on another home. Don't store up treasure here. It won't last. You can't take it with you. Store up treasure there. That's where it will last. And brothers and sisters, this is, we're in a temporary hotel room right now. And in an instant, you and I are going to stand before God to give an account for how we have spent the time and the money and the gifts and the resources we had here. 
And when that moment comes, we will not wish that we had acquired more stuff or lived more comfortably in the hotel room. We will wish we had given more of our lives and the abundance of our resources, making them count for the spread of his glory in ways that will last in our forever home for all of eternity. Invest eternally. And last thing, live truly. God says, I'm telling you this so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Yes, yes, this is truly life. Can I make the connection here with what we talked about in biblical discipleship last week? This is what it means to follow Jesus. If we are not giving generously, then we are not following Jesus. And we're missing out on life. So yes, as strange and as countercultural as it may seem, you need biblical giving. You need a church where we are calling one another to give generously and sacrificially. It's reminding one another week in and week out, we're just in a hotel room here. So don't, don't live it up in the hotel room. Let's start living for treasure in heaven that will last forever. And like we want life right now, that which is truly life on this earth. Church family, let's take God at his word on this one. Let's give like we have never given before in ways that resound to God's glory all across our city and among the nations and in ways that make our hearts glad. When, when, when God loves us so much enough to tell us the truth about giving. Will you bow your heads with me? All across this room and in other locations. All of this, all of this starts with trusting Jesus with your life. Trusting Jesus as Lord over everything in your life. And so I want to ask you right where you're sitting right now, have you put your trust in Jesus as Lord over your entire life, including your possessions? And maybe that's altogether new for you and Today, for the first time, I want to invite you just to say in your heart to Jesus right now, yes, I trust you as Lord of my life to forgive me my sins and to lead my life for what is good for me, glorifying to you. I invite you to trust in Jesus. Don't walk away from here sorrowful, holding on to whatever this world is offering you, turning your back on the 
one who made this world and who alone knows how to satisfy you. And for every follower of Jesus in this room, can I just voice a prayer for us? God help us. God help me. God help us all to trust your word, to believe your word. And in this materialistic world and materialistic culture to fight the good fight of faith. God, we pray that you would help us to be humble before you, to see ourselves as managers, not owners of anything. You would keep us from looking to 401ks and savings accounts and houses and cars for security, but to look to you for our certainty, security, comfort, hope. And God, we pray that by your spirit, you would lead us as a church family in the days ahead to give generously and invest eternally and live truly. Even as I pray that, I just want to give you a moment before we do anything else. What does this need to look like in your life? Just spend a moment before God. What would change if you were following this five-fold plan that God just gave us in his word? Take just a moment to think about that before God. God, help us not just to hear your word today, but to do what it says and to experience life according to your good design for us. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacy Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.